0: Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Teddy Kupfer, an associate editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today are Charles Lehman and Aaron Sibarium. Charles is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. Aaron is an associate editor of the Washington Free Beacon, and both of them have been writing about the spread of what might be called wokeness through American institutions, from business, business and medicine to higher education and the federal government. It's a popular topic to write about nowadays, But what sets their work apart is that it avoids a haphazard, connect-the-dots approach to intellectual history, and instead seeks to understand the institutional roots of this ideological transformation. Charles and Aaron, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us. Glad to be back
2: on the podcast.
0: Glad to have you. So let's discuss the historical and theoretical background uh, before we turn to some real-world examples. We should begin, although not everybody will agree, by stipulating that there actually is something called wokeness some package of beliefs maintaining, for example, that racism is embedded in American life, that disparities among groups are evidence of widespread bias, that interlocking systems of oppression exist and must be dismantled, and that we all have a duty to root them out, whether we're a politician, a schoolteacher, or an editor at Bon Appetit magazine. I think it's fair to say that such a stance exists and is increasingly visible, but where did it come from? Some people try to answer by pointing to similarities between the tenets of wokeness and the work of, say, the Frankfurt School or the critical race theorists, but that doesn't really explain why institutions have taken up wokeness with such zeal. Charles, in a cover story for the new issue of CJ, which is out now, you seek to answer that question by examining the legal environment in which businesses found themselves after the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This is an environment in which discrimination was suddenly illegal, but the definition of what constituted discrimination was both vague and ever-expanding. So why don't you walk us through this history?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to underscore that most people's experience of sort of everyday wokeness comes not from reading Marxists, but from the, the ideas that trickle down to them through their workplace, through their educational institution. That's part of why I'm interested in this level of analysis because it says something about uh how everyday people take up these ideas um in my cj piece you know what i what i'm interested in is the propagation particularly of race conscious corporate policy uh policies that within within businesses that focus on uh differentiating people by race being concerned with representation by race and other forms of uh affirmative action or related policies within the corporate environment um so you know back in the 1960s the major change that takes place in the in the wake of the Civil Rights Act is that there's an effectively there's a de facto there's a de jure ban on discrimination in the workplace among other areas um, and with the CRA the CRA is very broad in its language it follows other statutes issued throughout the 20th century in which case, in which it it, it places a blanket ban on a variety of kinds of discrimination, but doesn't tell us a great deal about what terms like discrimination mean, what terms like affirmative action, it doesn't show up in the CRA, but uh, is used in subsequent regulatory language, what terms like that mean, what terms like affirmative action mean. Um, At the same time, it creates this sort of vast regulatory apparatus, the EEOC, the Federal Office of Contract Compliance. Uh, the branches of the DOJ, which have a direct interest in ensuring that the poorly uh, articulated standards of the CRA are enforced to the sort of absolute idea of law. Um, so what ends up happening across uh, acro- through the 1970s is that many corporations respond by setting up offices whose primary goal operates under what I call a paradigm of compliance. Uh, that that. Uh, they make sure that they are following all of the rules for race-conscious policy laid out in the CRA and enforced by regulators subsequently. Um, there's a line in here, you know, you think of diversity trainings today, which are these really sort of very strange, obsessive affairs. There's a uh, in the 60s and 70s, diversity trainings were quote a litany a litany of dos and don'ts and maybe a couple of case studies for the participants to ponder. The point being that the you know the goal was to basically say how do we avoid running afoul of the law. Um, It's not, I argue, until the 1980s, when Reagan tries to ratchet some of this stuff back, that this now entrenched bureaucracy and set of norms that say uh, it's important for companies to be race conscious in how they operate, that those entities, those norms and practices uh, try to find alternative justifications for themselves. And in so doing sort of become systematically entrenched, detached from the sort of external regulatory justification.
0: Yeah, so that's the the early history. Uh, In the past decade, few years, though, the recitation of these uh, diversity, equity, inclusion views seems to have changed. It's grown more militant, uh, more repetitive, uh, more strident in tone. Listeners will, of course, remember the groveling apologies for social injustice that Fortune 500 businesses issued last summer. Uh, We watched as New York Times employees protested the publication of a U.S. senator's op-ed uh, and uh, in City Journal, we've had some reporting on the details of diversity training programs in schools and businesses, all of which seem to sound you know, the same. As you say, there's these strange affairs, uh, but you know, the same ideas sort of crop up time and again. So the pace and the similarity of this transformation seems to require further explanation. Uh, and both of you have located that explanation in some key concepts from academic sociology, so uh, why don't you explain what these concepts are uh, and, you know, briefly talk about how they account for what's going on today?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, I, so, so we're interested in sort of different kinds of institutional pressures. Um, and and uh, Gabriel Rossman has a, has a great piece, his sociologist at UCLA has a great piece in City Journal. It's really a, a companion piece to my own in which he walks through sort of some of the concrete uh, terms from institutional theory. Um, uh, he's a, a, a school of sociological thought. Uh, and, and, and what Gabriel highlights is that basically one of the key questions for institutionalists is why are, some, why are organizations so similar? Why do they exhibit what's called the term is isomorphism, same Um, Why is it given the sort of pressures of the market to diversify and multiply that uh, organizations end up following uh, such similar uh, norm, stand, norm standards, et cetera? Um, And there are are sort of three terms that get used. They're all forms of isomorphism. So we're talking about coercive isomorphism, um, which is where basically uh, an organization adopts something because the law says that it has to, or uh, other people in the market compel it to. Um, So coercive isomorphism brought brought, uh, compliance into existence in the 1960s. Um, We're talking about normative isomorphism. That's sort of the second one. if that's where really, really what this means in practice is that normative isomorphism is the rising of values uh, up from the workforce. So like the, the churn of the highly educated into the workforce perpetuates normative isomorphism because the highly educated bring with them some set of values prior to entering the company. And that, um that shapes the behavior uh, of the company. And the third one is mimetic isomorphism, which is where organizations model their behavior on other "quote unquote" industry leaders. So, if like Microsoft is doing something or Google is doing something, you want to copy what they're doing. Um, and you know, th- these are these are mechanisms by which notions, uh, pro- notions including notions of sort of ra- the validity of race-conscious policy, can propagate. A, if you get a large company doing it, uh, many other smaller companies will copy it. That's mimetic, isomorphism them. B, uh, if you get a bunch of woke college kids you've hired. Uh, entering your firm, they will pressure you to comply with uh, their norms, values. That's coercive isomorphism. But then C, and I tend to think most importantly, the the legal environment can set the terms for how we think about these problems in the first place. Can, in the case of the CRA, say race-conscious policy is a thing that we need to build a whole infrastructure to do in our corporations in the first place. Um, that's coercive isomorphism. Uh,
1: to piggyback On what Charles just said, it's worth noting that a, all of these different isomorphisms are kind of happening at the same time, and b, there are I'd say interaction effects between them. Um, So, for example, um, coercive and mimetic isomorphism, uh, you know, are often related. Uh, If a bunch of firms, in order to uh, comply with a vague anti-discrimination statute all start adopting the same practices to signal compliance and you're the one holdout, you might worry that a judge is going to note that you're the holdout and that you'll be more susceptible to legal liability. Um, And so the reason that you may be kind of mimicking what these other uh, firms are doing is in part because you know that if you don't uh, you could be you're you're more vulnerable to the legal pressures Charles dis- is describing so I, I mean I would just emphasize that these isomorphisms all kind of work together you know they're not necessarily separate or separable processes um, and that just makes uh, kind of disrupting or dismantling these pressures a lot more difficult
0: you know aaron i have a two-part question for you Uh, first let's see if we can ground some of this historical sociological talk with some real world examples you've broken a number of stories in the free beacon that show just how pervasive these views have become uh, from yale law school in fieldston to the centers for disease control and the american bar association why don't you talk about some of this reporting uh, and if you can explain how the historical background helps us make sense of it. The second part of the question uh, is, you know, what would a progressive make of all this? Uh, you know, he might find this conversation objectionable, uh, you know, retorting that you know conservatives are really just overreacting to rhetoric in order to hold together their political coalition. If wokeness even exists, a progressive might say it's at least directionally correct. And in any case, why does it matter? The odd training module or overheated corporate statement is ultimately inconsequential to the material forces that have a bearing on the direction of the country. So are we paying too much attention to rhetorical excesses? Sure, sure. So so
1: one good example of what Charles was calling coercive isomorphism, that, that's more concrete, is uh, accreditation bodies. Um, there is one in particular called the National Association for Independent Schools that accredits a lot of private schools, including places like Dalton um, and Fieldston that you've heard a lot about. Um, And the American Bar Association too, accredits all law schools in the United States. Um, The uh, joint liaison hosted by the American Medical Association and the the Association for American Medical Colleges accredits all med schools in the United States. And so these accrediting bodies are hugely powerful. Um, You really have to do what they say. and all of these bodies, without fail, have adopted uh, kind of wokeism, um, in part because of the influence of, you know, the sort of upper professional class people who, who uh, that Charles was talking about. You know, you could call that normative isomorphism, the, the sorts of people who you know, populate the American Medical Association are the same sorts of people of the same social class who populate the National Association for Independent Schools and the American Bar Association. So what ends up happening, right, is that all the accrediting bodies have somewhat similar values. Um, and that means that all the schools that they accredit have to have those values because invariably the accrediting bodies say that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a criterion for accreditation. And if you don't show that you're taking steps to diversify your student body very concretely, um, you know, and you don't have something that you can kind of report on an accreditation form, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you may not lose your accreditation, but you're definitely going to get a stern talking to. You may be put on probation and it will not be fun. So, of course, schools never actually lose their accreditation. What they do is they just bend over backwards to obsequiously comply with uh, the DEI stuff that's being pushed by their accreditors. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to suggest that this is all top down imposition. I think that. Um, in part because there's sort of internal bureaucracies you know, within um, all these law schools and medical schools and private schools and what have you. There's some just organic grassroots pressure for it at this point. But there also is this sort of top-down, centralized um, push in a lot of fields of education. Um, and that, I think, does help explain why the way say yale law talks and behaves and the way that um you know maybe mount sinai medical school behaves and the way that dalton behaves why these are all similar um it's because they're all subject to um a sort of the same incentives um so that's sort of that i hope makes sort of the the terminology we've been throwing around a little more concrete um but you asked another question teddy which is well why should we care Um, and, you know, if all of this stuff were just about using the same language and that was it, yeah, okay, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, but the problem is that the language is meant to convey a particular set of ideas and values that have actual policy implications. Um, you saw this with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, um, consciously choosing, a vaccination plan that their own model said would result in um, thousands of preventable deaths uh, just in the name of racial equity. Um, The sort of distribution of vaccinations to them uh, between racial groups was more important than the actual um, utilitarian benefits of the vaccination. Another example uh, that I'm actually working on writing something about now that I think is even scarier is that there is a concerted push in antitrust law, including within the Federal Trade Commission that has huge enforcement powers um, to do what they call sort of anti-racist antitrust policy. And it's not entirely clear what that means, but uh, an FTC commissioner named Rebecca Slaughter, who has a lot of power, she's one of five people who votes on antitrust policy, she she offers a clue on Twitter when she says, and I'm not making this up, that we should look to South Africa for uh, our antitrust policies. And South Africa is one of the only developed countries to integrate Concerns about racial equity and sort of historically marginalized groups into competition policy. uh, Firms have to have a particular, like a certain percentage of black stakeholders or or ownership stakes. Um, If a merger will result in a less diverse conglomerate overall, less diverse at least vis a vis management, antitrust authorities in South Africa have been known to block the merger. Now, why is that a Problem Well, in South Africa, what's ended up happening is this kind of race conscious, like affirmative action in law and economic policy has led to a lot of corruption and crony capitalism, which has reduced investment, which has increased unemployment. The unemployment rate in South Africa is something like 30%. It's really high. And that, of course, does not do them any good when it comes to social stability and crime. And so this summer, when you had, uh, there was some, the, the, president of South Africa was brought up on some corruption charges and it kind of was the match that lit this, the, the sort of long, uh, long kind of burning, uh, kindling. Um, and, you know, the country erupted into riots that killed over 300 people and cost, you know, tens of thousands of jobs, billions in damages, and just was insanely destructive. Um, you know, it's not entirely because of their race-conscious policies, but the race-conscious policies definitely played a role. Um, So, you know, and you have now American government officials with a lot of power saying, hey, why don't we model our laws and enforcement on South Africa, right? You know, so this stuff actually matters and, and can affect people's lives and, you know, affect who lives and dies. So, you know, it's not just about language. It actually... Uh, has policy significance.
2: If if I can if I can sort of hop on at the end here and say, um, you know, I think I I think part of the value of the institutional frame is it lets us answer questions like why do people keep getting more extreme about this stuff? You know, Aaron alluded earlier to this uh, weighing of decisions for for vaccine prioritization between uh, the value you know trying to save lives and the value of racial equity and you know the that, that 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 sort of contrasting obviously utilitarian thing with sort of fealty to a particular set of values is a classic example of what happens when norms, notions, practices, et cetera get et cetera get quote unquote institutionalized. Um, so in the you know in the second half of my article, I argue that what happens in the 1980s is that Reagan takes his foot off the gas a little bit on on federal pressure. And these compliance bureaucracies shift gears and they say, OK, we got to have race conscious policy because that's what's good for business. They make what's called the the uh, the the business case for diversity. Um, and as it turns out, there isn't really a business case of diversity like there's not it's not really necessarily a beneficial. Your, diversity doesn't hurt. It doesn't necessarily help. The net effects are small either way. Um, but this this sort of serves as a, as a fig leaf over a set of notions and practices that it is good for your company to try to try to have strive to have more diversity, more racial inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which become, again, what are called institutionalized norms, uh, things that are done, givens, things that are done because they are done and deviations from which uh, merits social sanction independent of its utilitarian value. And so what we see today, to go back to Aaron's point, is like, uh, people's adherence, people's strict adherence to these norms that are not grounded in reality, that are not measurable, that are not related to some external benefit, but are pursued for their uh, pursued as goods in themselves, and consequently result in uh, there, there's there's no upper limit on the sort of craziness that can uh, that they can entail.
1: Yeah, and and if I could just add one thing to that, um, I think another driver of this is that you know, the civil rights bureaucracy shortly into its life started to transition away from just looking at intentional uh, discrimination and start began looking more to disparate impact and disparities, and in particular to how those disparities could be closed. And, and the closure of the disparities in many cases became a metric for the success of the civil rights bureaucracy. And there was a very practical reason for that. It wasn't that they were all, you know, proto-Kendist ideologues. It was that they were bureaucrats who needed to prove that their salaries were accomplishing something. And you can't really prove that you're, you know, changing hearts and minds, or it's very difficult to prove that. Um and getting rid of sort of intentional acts of discrimination, it's much easier to prove that you are closing just objective, statistically measurable gaps um, between racial groups. Uh, And so one reason that I think there's, you know, not really a limit to this stuff is because just they, they... they have a practical, pragmatic incentive to make it all about outcomes. And once you start looking for differences in outcomes, you're going to find them everywhere. Um, So there's something, I think, just inherent in the very logic of bureaucracy needing um, needing to make social reality legible in order to claim that the bureaucracy is doing something to improve social reality, that that inner logic, I think, explains a lot of the push towards um the business practices charles is talking about and then i think in turn explains why some of these woke ideologies have emerged they 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 serve as a kind of uh post hoc convenient rationalization uh for all these bureaucracies for what they're already doing right if you just define racism as the presence of disparities as kendi basically does well then suddenly it's perfectly principled for bureaucracies to do every you know this kind of race conscious policy um so you know th- and this is almost a kind of you could say marxist explanation for the rise of wokeness marxist in the sense that it's you know rooted in the material incentives of various agents in the system but, you know, it, yeah, it's not that the people necessarily have to be convinced of Kendiism or have some kind of like religious awakening. It's just sort of like, well, we're already doing this. And, oh, look, here's an ideology that says that what we are doing and indeed have to do uh,
0: is good and moral. OK, like that's the ideology we'll go with. Yeah, it's certainly uh, the Marxist public choice theory, horseshoe theory. I mean, I, I have a, a small question before we get to. Uh, the last point, which is what do we do about all this? But do we have a sense of the scale of the diversity industry? I know there. Are, I mean, you guys are alluding to um, the bureaucracies uh, need to expand itself, and obviously there have been uh, you know discussions of the ever-expanding uh, administration and universities, um, and 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 there have been some old estimates that I believe from you know the early aughts of uh, the you know the amount of money flowing around in the diversity industry, but do we have a sense of like how big it is now?
2: Yeah. You know, we, we only have hints. Um, and, and the reason for that is because of course, many of these firms are not public. They're, they're private. So it's hard to keep track of that. Um, the old estimate is that the diversity industry is worth, uh, gosh, I want to say it was $3 billion, but that's uh, in the early two thousands. You mentioned it's almost certainly an order of magnitude uh, bigger than that. Um, there are other sort of minor indicators. So, for example, Heritage, the Heritage Foundation just put out a report where they said that uh, 79% of school districts with more than 100,000 students have chief diversity officers. Uh, that's sort of a, an interesting estimate. Um, there's some evidence of, there's some more evidence on sort of the scale in school, but you know, we don't know. Um, I've, I've done reporting on one firm influential in New York City, a nonprofit uh, called Pollyanna. Which you know used to have five clients and make forty thousand dollars a year, and in twenty nineteen it had, uh, I think twenty clients made two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and who knows what the numbers are going to be like in twenty twenty? I'm waiting for that uh, final figure to come out. So there's almost certainly been exponential growth in this industry. Is is something we can say for sure? So um, you
0: know, we need to turn to the last uh, practical question, which I think is uh. Sort of common question on issues like this what is to be done? You know, a number of solutions uh, have been offered, at least from those who think that this is a problem. And some see businesses uh, going woke, and say this culprit is stakeholder capitalism, you know, the notion that uh, companies should be involved in social problems, trying to solve them. Uh, and, and they argue for a return to shareholder primacy uh, as the antidote. You know, others see the role of civil rights laws, which we've been discussing. Uh, and say that we either need to expand them to protect political beliefs, uh, or we need to extirpate the civil rights civil rights laws altogether, or maybe uh, engage in some kind of targeted uh, legal war- warfare to try to uh, unravel concepts such as disparate impact that have been uh, especially determinative. And then others, uh, I'm thinking of Richard Hanania in a recent article in American Affairs. Say that the only solution may be to exit institutional pluralism. He calls it create alternative institutions uh, that are non woke and allow dissenters to sort of live free from the mainstream. So, in your in in your infinite wisdom, uh, what do you think is to be done? You know, how if you think this is a problem, should policymakers and intellectuals seek
2: to tackle it? Yeah, you know, I think I think. Uh, in some senses in my mind the ideal model is uh do the work to make exit possible and then if people want to exit they can exit um i think that works better in you know exit works really well in the school space we've got we have got like a great model there like school choice is the solution for ultimately the solution for crazy work schools um that's I'm not necessarily uh going to be true in the business space the university level Because of these, because of these isomorphic pressures, because uh, in order to follow the the whims of the accreditors, or because of you need to get along with your peers, it's it's uh, it's harder to go your own way. There's less institutional structural. You know, in order to have a school choice movement, you have to have the laws that permit charter schools. Um, And I think there are analogies here. Uh, The the thing that I would say that I argue in the piece is that. The plain language of the CRA prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, among other things. Uh, One of the few institutions that conservatives have been systematically consistently able to control uh, over the past couple of decades is the courts. We have a friendly court system that's willing to say, look, uh, the CRA's ban on discrimination should exclude employers from compelling white people to uh, profess their racism, uh, should exclude employers from segregating training sessions Uh, should prohibit hiring, in fact, does prohibit hiring on the basis of race, which many firms are winking at, if not actually doing, making it easier, uh, more clearly articulating the minimum standards of compliance with federal law makes it easier for firms that would like to dissent to dissent. And simultaneously going after some of the worst excesses as violations of those same rights, I think uh, sends a strong signal to sort of, uh, it, it, it it curbs the worst successes. It stops the perpetually accelerating process. Um, I think that is, those are the tool, two tools that I would think about using.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I broadly agree with that. I think that there kind of need to be two different things with civil rights law. So the first is you do want to have the courts, and frankly, ideally Congress, although this may not, be possible but ideally you, you know you do have the compliance standards spelled out more and in particular it be made explicit that you know effectively that you know what what robin d'angelo and people are peddling you know essentially constitutes a kind of like anti-white harassment or racism and is not allowed um, and anti stuff with compelled speech can also help with that in certain contexts um, but then i think the other thing you have to do which is more thorny um but ultimately is very important uh, is you need to you do need to pare back some of the disparate impact stuff. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily think you need to totally get rid of it, and that's probably not possible anyway. But um, I mean, the root of kendiism and the root of wokeness and the thing that is most concerning about these ideologies, I think, is ultimately not that they tell white kids that they're oppressors, bad and stupid as that may be. I think the more concerning thing is that they they see racial disparities, or at least certain kinds of racial disparities involving certain groups as ipso facto illegitimate. And you just can't really run a functioning society on that premise because, you know what, Um, in the real world, uh, you know, for various cultural, you know, and historical reasons, groups are just going to be different. um, And, you know, any kind of neutral policy will have disparate impact. Um, And so, yeah, you kind of need to, I think, reform the law and ultimately reform all kind of bureaucratic institutions in a way where they don't see disparities and conclude, ah, that's a problem that needs fixing. It might be, but it also might not be. Um, And in many cases, I would argue it actually, you know, isn't, right? Like, it's not, I mean, it's not a problem, um, in my view, that Stuyvesant is 75% Asian, right? Like, that is not a problem. And uh, I, you know, think that we kind of just need to get rid of the legal and institutional drivers that that push people to say it's a problem,
2: yeah, you know, a a, a great example here briefly. there's I think uh, I think it is likely that affirmative action will be deemed uh, federally illegal within the next, I don't know five years, um through SF through uh, the Harvard case, if nothing else. Um, I just don't think the liberals can count to five on the court for that case. Um and that will be a watershed moment. like, Yeah, uh, affirmative action policy is definitely contravening the plain language of the CRA. They definitely violate federal law. Um, If you want to be a recipient of uh, federal funds, you're going to have to stop admitting kids on the basis, partially on the basis of race. Uh, That's going to change things a lot. It's going to change things both in the short run, but also in the long run, because those norms will no longer be explicitly embraced uh, with this explicitly embraced by. Uh, regulators, and consequently, downstream from that, some colleges will no longer explicitly embrace those norms, and consequently, downstream of that, uh, many students will no longer explicitly embrace those norms at the margin, and that shifts both uh, the institutional pressures today and the institutional pressures, pressures tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, how optimistic are you, though, Charles? Because school, I I think in the short run, you know, schools are going to fight this like the plague. Uh, at least Harvard and Yale will, and 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 find all sorts of excuses to sort of do affirmative action without saying they're doing it kind of like they already do, but just into overdrive. I mean, do you think that, uh, this will ultimately result in enough kind of serious sanctions or threats of sanctions that they really will change their behavior? I mean, it's an open question. It's just, it's so, it is so deeply institutionalized. It's like, I have a tough time even conceiving of su- the re- kind of radically different reality you, you seem
0: to imagine. They're already good at kind of concealing what it is they're doing too, right? Like there are, in the Harvard case, you've seen multiple different, they, you know, you bury justification on top of obscurantism and all of a sudden it becomes unclear what the admissions people are even talking about. So yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know this question's for Charles and I'll yield to him in a second, but I, I see, uh, I don't think it's too hard to imagine you know, schools saying, well, we're just correcting for socioeconomic balance uh, while having some, you know, arcane language to uh, continue doing affirmative action in practice.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the pessimistic case here is the UC system, the University of California system, where they do have de facto affirmative action, and they sort of have to obscure it because the state constitution prohibits affirmative action. That said, you know, the the reason to be optimistic at Harvard, not just because I think the anti-affirmative action side will win, Uh, The reason to be optimistic about that case is, you know, it was the work of, I mean, it is in essence the work of one professional litigant, Ed Blum, um, and then a sort of a series of people around him. Uh, But that is, you know, an example of leveraging the court system well, where you say, here's a concrete harm that's being done because of these discriminatory institutions. The plain meaning of the law is that you cannot discriminate in this way. Um, If you keep doing it, we're going to make your lives very unpleasant through the uh, legal system that protects those, that protects uh, our rights to be discriminated to not be discriminated against. Um, I think I think that look, is it guaranteed that there will be success? No, it's ultimately a political project. But like uh, I, I I think that there are avenues to apply pressure that are only now beginning to be explored, and I am optimistic about the impact that will have given the composition of the particularly the federal bench, but also also sort of the the, the power of state houses the conservatives exercise. Like like I think that. Uh, there, y- y- yes, there will be obscurantism. Yes, they will try to hide these practices uh, going forward. But also, like eventually, you can make it costly enough that they just have to give up. Uh, yes, the 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 institutions are. Uh, y- yes, the values are deeply institutionalized. But eventually, they have to run up against reality if reality is harmful enough to them. If 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 they don't, if it doesn't yield. I mean, one one other thing I would I would just bring up
1: uh, is while well, I agree with everything that I and uh, and Charles have said about this being largely about law and about kind of bureaucratic incentives, you know, it does seem to me that wokeism has benefited from a kind of a perceived moral high ground, which comes from the just fact that, well, yes, you know, I don't think that um, any given disparity is so facto illegitimate, you know, the United States does not have just some disparities, you know, in a few areas, it has uh, very dramatic disparities um, between blacks and whites, with the former having been uh, subjugated by the latter in a pretty brutal way for centuries. And, you know, I think part of the challenge here is in acknowledging that history and not just saying, ah, you shouldn't care about it, you know, whatever, it's, it's 2021, leave it behind, because I think that that politically just, I am not convinced that that works. The challenge is to acknowledge that without um, bending on the woke stuff.
2: I think what you can say very concretely is that Americans Americans like equality of opportunity, dislike uh, enforced equality of outcomes. Systematically, quotas are strongly opposed by American voters. The states of California and Washington both retain, uh, after multiple times, time, both retain affirmative action bans. So, like you know, you 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 can say that you can say there are pre-existing, uh disparities, but like the the American people will not be on the side of resolving these disparities through. Uh, it, enforced equality um, and it's only done so with, the project of enforced equality can only be achieved through obscurantism and through bureaucratic manipulation. Um, so like, I'm optimistic about exposing these people to democratic accountability. Yeah. I, I mean, I think another
1: reason for optimism that we haven't talked about is just the changing racial composition of the United States in part um, under the influence of immigration. Uh, Wesley Yang talks a lot about this, but the whole sort of both the kind of MAGA and critical race theoretic uh, discourses uh, are are implicitly rooted in black a kind of black versus white model that just is increasingly obsolete in a world uh, of interracial marriage and in a world of you know where there there has recently been pretty high immigration rates. Uh, that's not to say that you know we want tons and tons of immigration and that, you know, there aren't problems associated with it. But, you know, the the, the, the benefit of a record high share of the population being foreign born is that it, it sort of uh, disrupts the old racial categories on which not just uh, CRT kind of conceptually and intellectually is based, but also these uh, laws, you know, and structures that Charles and I have been talking about are based Um and so you know i think that as that continues there is some reason to think that there will just be a limit to how far the woke stuff can go simply because eventually it will just run into kind of the racial realities of of the united states in 20 you know in the next in 2021 onwards in the next few decades and those realities just are not the realities of the 60s or 70s or even 80s
0: right well with that um listeners don't forget to check out charles's work on the city journal website and aaron's reporting in the washington free beacon we will link to each of their author pages in the description you can also find city journal on twitter at city journal and on instagram at city journal underscore mi and charles and aaron are on twitter as well at charles f lehman and at aaron sabarium As always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, please give give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And Charles and Aaron, thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks once again.
0: Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural
2: commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.